It's June 7th, 2022, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines. And the one we'll start out with is U.S. plans to sell Ukraine armed MQ-1C Great Eagle drones from the war zone. And so this, I guess, is part of a larger package. But the interesting thing here, of course, is that we haven't been exporting these UAVs. They're kind of under um, some regulations that treat it as though it were um, almost like a nuclear missile, right? Um, as, or other types of missiles. So uh, this one's heavily export controlled. And the, the interesting thing here that they said that the export of U.S. drone technology in particular is highly regulated, and it isn't clear how those regulations would impact the MQ-1C transfer to Ukraine under these emergency circumstances. So um, I guess that was proposed. Congress can still block the sale, uh, but it's not really clear how like all the machinations that might have to get involved with the State Department to actually make sure that there's the full clearance of that. But interesting that they're they're now kind of putting that out there and you know starting to compete against the Turkish drones, which has been getting a lot of uh, press. The whole export control system, as we we've talked about before, it's uh it's pretty insane. I mean, uh, you know, the amount of like kind of rigor it has to go through in terms of the State Department and all these offices that, you know, sometimes they're kind of disconnected from some of these sort of national security decisions and, you know, from what the, you know, DAD is trying to do is try to build up allies and, you know, make sure our allies are as well equipped as, as we are. So when we're fighting together and we're depending on them, they can actually, you know, bring to bear the forces we need. But yeah, hopefully, you know, I'm really optimistic that given how we seem to have gotten around a lot of this, I mean, I guess we'll see if somebody does, block this or block the uh, the high mars or something like that it looks like the high mars is kind of going forward but yeah if that's uh if that goes maybe this sort of will break loose this kind of reevaluation yeah i guess this all gets back to the whole point of dod used to be the first or like the leader right the the first mover in a lot of these things and it thought that if you just hold a tight enough control over it other countries won't get it or it'll take them forever to figure it out um, so you can keep a keep an eye on it. But I guess with the proliferation of commercial technology, it's just going to be less and less likely that that's true. Right. And they're just going to have to kind of accept that, you know, you just are going to have to move at the frontier at the fastest pace possible. And you might have some of the highest end exquisite stuff that no one else can do. But some of these important technologies and weapon systems will actually be more proliferated. Yeah, no, Exactly. I guess, you know, they also said here, um, they mentioned the Hellfire, but I assume if you're going to sell them a Great Eagle, you're also going to sell them Hellfires, right? Yeah, I think that was that was discussed. Uh, and it seems like that's one of the uh, <laughs> one of the compelling reasons for for having the Great Eagles, its ability to sort of, you know, what is it said? Like a double, I guess, double the uh, the punch um, of what the TB2 uh, can, can launch, which is like a Turkish made uh, munition. So. So yeah, I think they probably would need Hellfires. And of course, the the High Mars that you mentioned is is other. That's a pretty you know high end capability as well. Uh, it's interesting that yeah. they're they're also sending that into Ukraine. It seems like pretty big escalation in in some respects. I'm I'm more blown away by. I mean, I feel like we've had a lot of willpower on our side. So I feel like you know, I guess the question is, the Ukrainians were kind of saying they needed like. 60 of these sort of, you know, MR, MLRS systems. And I guess they probably don't need 60 HIMARS, but they, they need, probably need a lot more than we're giving them. So we're, we're you know, we're sending, um, I, get, I forget how many HIMARS is it? Uh, well, they, they definitely uh, want as much, like they're going to request and have a requirement for ridiculous amounts. Right. But like, what do well, they, they, what do they need to like maintain, you know, some kind of, I don't know. Like, that's a weird question, I guess, to ask, right? It's like, we want to give you stuff, but like, not too much stuff. And like, what's that line? And how how good or bad do you have to be doing for me to cross certain thresholds? Well, the, I, the, the one, I forget if it came from the Ministry of Defense or if it was from Zelensky himself, but he actually said, they, or Ukrainian like, ministry said, basically, if you give us 60, we can push, basically push Russia back. And if you give us 40, they actually broke it down to like three trips. If you give us 40, we can inflict massive casualties and keep them from progressing or something. And then it's like, if you give us 20, 
we can increase massively increase the number of casualties the Russians will take in acquiring any more territory or something like they, they actually did break it down in terms of the, 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 the MLRS uh, uh, rocket systems. And so I, I thought that was kind of interesting. It's like, okay, you get 20, 40 or 60, they kinda, you know, put a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of depth. Yeah. But it feels like, a, but. you know, like when you go out and they're like, let me supersize you. It's only 60 cents more. Right? Like, <laughs> it feels a little bit like that. Um, but remember, also yeah. Zelensky also mentioned in there. He didn't he promise like, oh, for High Mars, like I pro I promise you won't launch. I won't it. launch yeah. it into Russian territory, even though they clearly have the capability to do so. I think it was, and I think it was less about launching into territory, like if Russia's ever like bringing forces over, and more about like not going to use it to bomb cities or stuff like that. Like, you know, cause it, it does have really long range. So you could, you could actually target some Russian cities. Um, yeah. So the, the other one though, that, that kind of got me was the fact that the Germans um, are actually giving their kind of high end uh, missile defense system. And, and they're also doing this, this uh, Mars two, which is kind of like the high Mars, not quite as, I, I think as sophisticated, but, it uses the same launch uh, launch rocket system, the M270, and it actually can load up like 12 rockets at a time. So kind of interesting. The Germans are actually getting some you know real capabilities over there. They've been talking about that haven't really done for a while. So. Yeah, I you know staying on the high Mars front, I I kind of want to look at it this this and say like, okay, what does uh, Zelensky need, and like what is how much are they demanding high Mars and how much like traditional artillery and does that have any bearing on the force structure 2030 with the Marine Corps? Right. Like his remember Bob work kept bringing up yeah. high Mars. as kind of like one of those focal points of the long range um, fires program for, for the Marines. And then the generals kept bringing it up like, well, you need artillery and you know, these types of smoke ammunition and this, that, and the other for maneuver and we're getting rid of it all. Um, so I would just like to kind of, I mean, they're not requesting any M1 Abrams, are they? I don't think we'd give it to them. I don't think they're, maybe they don't have the balls to, to ask for it yet. <laughs> yeah, I think they did have all the combat vehicles. I don't know if they, yeah, I think they did, I think at one point asked for tanks, but I don't think they asked for Abrams. Um, I mean, yeah, I think I listened to a podcast over the weekend that they, they kind of talked about the importance of artillery. And I think artillery is being shown here that, you know, besides just the high Mars, you really do need like some of this higher end artillery. The army's done. The army actually has a lot of different, uh, you know, pal- paladin and some of these other systems that are incredibly long. I mean, some of these munitions now are going like, like hundreds and hundreds of miles, like a artillery round. It's just kind of insane. But, but yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be important. And this person on the podcast was making the point that even in the Pacific, you know, artillery can be used to kind of take out ships. And I really hadn't thought about that, but that's a good point. So. Yeah, so on the Marine Corps front, maybe they'll find this experimental unit that actually artillery does have a role um, in some of their operations. It's maybe not as agile, but some of these ones, like I mean, you know, some of the some of the rocket or the uh, artillery systems, they're not they're not all that big. Like they actually seem like they've sort of gotten them much down down to a more compact size. So so maybe the Marine Corps will evaluate, reevaluate that based on the criticism. Yeah, I mean. You, they definitely should, right? Or at least like, you know, have this feedback process of mm-hmm. reason, debate, empirical evidence, and then, you know, continually updating, you know, plans and programs to reflect that. But, you know, on the, on the long range artillery, um, last week, we kind of had one of those stories. The Army's dream of artillery that fires a thousand miles is officially a dud. The strategic long range cannon looks like they kind of gave up on that one. Um, and there's multiple ways, I guess, you can boost the rocket um, either with, you know, a ramjet shell, which is pretty interesting, <laughs> right? I'd love to see a ramjet on that. I mean, what if like you, if the U.S. just got really good at doing scram slash ramjet type things, and it's just like we got them on our artillery, we got them on missiles, we got them on reusable aircraft. That'd be that'd be pretty cool. I mean, I'm not sure that would be very cost effective though, um, and I think if you put a scramjet on a Artillery round, I'm pretty sure it turns it into a missile, <laughs> but uh, it's no, no longer it's self-propelled. But yeah, I mean, I think you're right that, you know, there, there probably is a range too. where like, you know, how far do you need an artillery round to go, you know, before you employ some other systems, you know? So are you, was it, by the way, was that the Urca? The Urca is gone? 
not going away or is this a different one um i think that no that one was a strategic range i think the urka is still oh, okay. around and that one's okay, much, that's so. much shorter that's just like yeah. 175 miles maybe something like that i don't want to don't quote me at you know on that but uh, oh yeah i thought it was further but uh yeah the, the urka urka was like in a you know pretty uh you know next step in in tech so maybe yeah maybe that winds up being the right like sort of range and you know at some point to get the range maybe you have to make it so big that it's not very agile or it's easily targeted or you know there's probably like sort of a operational you know sort of trade-off point you know before uh before it doesn't make sense so yeah the urca here goes 72 kilometers so much 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 shorter than what i just said oh i thought okay yeah but that one's not going to have like rocket assisted right projectiles and stuff like that or 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 no, a ramjet yeah, on it. Called... <laughs> uh, yeah, probably not a ramjet. But yeah, some of the other things that so there was that uh, $700 million package, right? High Mars was in there. Uh, four MI-17 helicopters. So there's a bunch of stuff coming from other com- countries as well. But 1,000 javelins and 50 command launch units. So those command launch units are kind of the reusable part of it. The javelin all up round and the tube are kind of the tube itself that connects to the command launch unit. I guess those are disposable, so they got a thousand of those. Fifteen thousand artillery rounds of the one five five millimeter. So those are like the Paladin rounds, right? Um, so they do have uh, that kind of demand signal there as well. Yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully get it in a timely fashion. It sounds like they uh, really need it. Uh, so the next one we got is uh, Israeli Prime Minister laser air defense to cost $2 per missile interception. Uh, so in the past, we had at some other times heard that it might be 350 per intercept. But I guess this system here known as Iron Beam instead of the Iron Dome, which had the uh, kind of kinetic <laughs> missiles. Um, Iron Beam might be brought down to $2 per intercept. Um as opposed to tens of thousands um, to millions even to track and eliminate missiles in the old way. And so for me, I mean, this is really cool, right? Like it, if it works, that's like, this seems like the next, the next thing there. But the real question for me is like, you know, what's the range, what's the effectiveness types of threat it can get, engage. Are you probably, I'm sure you're going to need kind of like a hybrid of iron beam and iron dome for quite a while until, you know, iron beam becomes reliable enough. Yeah, I kind of was thinking about that too. I watched the video and it is it does seem pretty impressive and, and they, they do seem pretty happy about the the test after the, the test was done. Um well I, I did look at the, the drone though when when they did the, the last test was the drone. It looked like that laser had to stay on that for quite a long time. Um when you think about you know, I, I it did kind of occur to me because they launched those mortars and then they shot the mortars down as sort of like, you know, how much time, like how far away does it have to be, you know, to be effective before you, you, you can't actually like stay on it long enough. Um, you also need probably like the right kind of weather. And I think, I think where Israel's at, they probably have, for one, they have cl- a lot of clear area. They have the, they have generally probably supportive weather um, where it's not going to diffuse the laser or sort of get diffracted or whatever. Um so yeah, it sort of seems like maybe they're in the right place, but in certain environments, it would maybe not work nearly as well. Um, I think what was really impressive is the targeting. And I think that's probably the more sophisticated part of that whole system is the ability to target the the mortar that quickly and then engage the engage the laser on it. It's fairly impressive. So. Uh, were you referring back to the, the other one that was like the striker combat vehicle, the DEM Shorad? Uh, they actually just did a test uh, yes. where they yeah, were yeah. able to take out a mortar. Cause I think the Israeli thing, they were, they were looking at like cruise missiles and UAVs and stuff like that. No, well the, the laser one there in the test on the video, they, they took, took out a mortar. Oh, they did. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, cool. Well, I mean, that's another thing that has just happened too, right? Like the striker combat vehicle did the same thing out in uh white sands missile range in, in New Mexico. Yeah. And sure. so it looks like, you know, that that program's moving along pretty well here. Uh, Raytheon and Core Technologies, Core is doing the integration on Striker. Raytheon is doing, uh, is teaming on on the, uh, the actual laser itself. And they're scheduled to deliver four of those DEM Shorads 
uh, later this year. So M Shore ad, which was of course, you know, putting essentially stingers on uh, integrated onto uh, the striker. That was pretty rapid acquisition. Uh, three years, got it out to the field, and now DEM Shorad is kind of following that up. So some moving at pace there. The directed energy world has uh, has, has come. So I guess, uh, you know, all those years of, you know, everybody trying different things and airborne laser failure and all that, I guess we're, you know, it was all worth it. It's probably, we'll probably never be able to quantify all the learning and all the, you know, sort of sort of events that that happened that are enabled us to get to this place but it probably it probably is all those failures right that that enabled probably this breakthrough to to get to this place so kind of interesting yeah i would you know there's like with a lot of these technologies there's like winters and then there's springs maybe we're just like in a fake out spring for for one of these things and we'll get into another winter of lasers i in, in some cases, I'm kind of sure that's going to happen to an ex- extent. Like we'll get some or they will get some, right? <laughs> um, some mm-hmm. classes of, of threats they might be able to take out. Uh, but for a lot of the really important ones, it's just not going to prove out as reliable. And then we'll get a winter and then we'll get come back, right? Hypersonics, we've had this. There's all sorts of <laughs> like winter AI is another one where you get like a lot of hope and then it kind of goes away. We're supposed to have driving cars by now, right? Like four years ago, everyone was like, sure. It was just like, everyone's going to have it. And it's funny you say that. Cause I was like, I, I forget what I saw recently, but it was, somebody was talking about that, about like how, you know, a driver will never have, we won't have driverless cars for like 20 more years or something. You know, it's kind of, I, I was kind of thinking about the, the, the whole winter thing too. I was like, you know, what's going to happen is like, all this work on autonomy and all this stuff behind the scenes, all of a sudden it's going to be like, they're going to feel something. It's going to be like, yep, this actually works really, really well. <laughs> like this 99%, you know, safety, safety, you know, effectiveness or whatever. And then all of a sudden like driverless cars will become a thing. Like, it'll just like sort of happen. It would be surprised. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I mean, isn't that how it normally happens? I mean, if it was very predictable, then like investment would be pretty, like we should be, in the stock game right but <laughs> i think like yeah. th- one of the rules of these things is that yeah it, it will just generally be surprising like when it does happen by the way i did look up and apparently spain is gonna send leopard tanks to ukraine so they will get some spanish tanks uh, which i hadn't heard of the leopard but uh, so yeah the leopard anyway. i mean that's the the german yeah. right the german tank well uh, maybe it is a german tank spain's giving them to them but i mean what does spain need tanks for like who's driving through poland germany you know france and then you you end up in spain like you can't even you can't even get there i know you have to like (laughs) unless you land everything but who can land on shore who who besides the u.s can like affect that kind of landing amphibious landing in spain that's the that's the new european threat right (laughs) and they let them go through portugal first so all right, yeah, next one we'll do here. Chinese aircraft carrier seen with a fleet of drones on its desk. And that's the Shandong, which is the second uh, Chinese indigenous carrier. And they basically just had a picture with a bunch of uh, different classes of UAVs on them um, of different you know, levels of sophistication. And there's the big speculation. Uh, so um, not, not surprising, of course, that that's what they would be doing, but... Um, I'm sure, you know, they're experimenting pretty heavily into this. Yeah. Yeah. Not surprising at all. Right. I mean, they, they've built the aircraft carriers. I think one of the more, you know, we, and we know they've been, you know, kind of experimenting with swarms and you, you know, you even saw on the civilian side with, uh, you know, AVIC, like they, their ability to do these or DJI where they can do these sort of, you know, designs in the sky with drones. Like that's, you know, the technology is clearly there. Um, and now it's just building the right level of sophistication into some of these military application drones, military applied drones. Um, well, one thing that was interesting, though, is that the the Aviation Industry Corporation of China, which is a state owned enterprise, but generally more focused on uh, on the civilian sector, they they actually are uh, getting in the in the business with uh, they have a navalized version of the stealthy GJ11 sharp sword UCAV. And, and they actually have like an amphibious assault ship 
where like it's meant to deploy like swarms of drones. I thought that was kind of interesting. Is like that's kind of what we've been talking about. You know that we want the the U.S. to start exploring more, and it seems like uh, you know China may actually be building a ship to do that. So it'd be almost like a drone mothership, and it would just deploy these swarms uh, of of drones. I don't know exactly what type it would be, but maybe some of them this sharp sword UCAV one, but. Yeah, kind of interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to think how those decisions get made because it's just like, I imagine, well, that sounds like a cool idea. Let's just go do it. You know, like, let's just start small, like, and then we'll kind of scale up. But the US, like, how how many analyses of, of alternative and authorities and different offices of compliance would you have to kind of go through even like think about attempting an idea like that? in an experimental phase. Yeah. I mean, well, it would, it would be an AOA and requirements and, uh, and then, you know, probably a year to get on contract. So yeah, it'd be years, right? If you, yeah. <laughs> Don't depress me. Get, I know. It, but it's like, there's not one of the things there about it for me, I guess, is like, they're all treated the same. Cause like in this case, like we have flat deck carriers or like we can even set up a barge. And we have these UAVs, like there's nothing like start swarming them and just see what happens. I mean, you do it on land, so maybe there's a crawl, walk, run phase to it as well. Um, but I think experimentation across a lot of fronts in a cheap, austere manner using high TRL type technologies seems to make sense. And it does, shouldn't require like multiple years of planning to just go do it. I mean, I also just would like to see, because I mean, I think there there has, has been a lot of experimentation, right? Like we've seen DARPA and yeah. some of the things they, they've done. I think I think what where we fall short is that we really need more experimental units yeah. where, you know, like like the Marine Corps is doing, right? They're, they didn't, yeah, they got rid of some tanks and stuff like that. So so they, they, they made some, they made some of those decisions, but they also didn't completely restructure, you know, all of their maths. They, they took, they took one math and they said, we're going to experiment with this and see how it works. So I would like to see us do more of that with, you know, with some of these kind of novel concepts is, you know, kind of like that hedge, the carrier hedge that we had in World War II is, you know, let's just, uh, you know, have an experimental unit of drone swarming and, you know, actually put it out there with the fleet. And, you know, while the fleet's, you know, doing exercises, doing their day-to-day training, you can kind of be, you know, doing real world experimentation about like, how could that work? How does this work? You know, I mean, you clearly have to do some maturation before you get there, but, but like, instead of waiting for everything to be perfect and then like, okay, now we have to integrate it into the fleet operations or air operations or whatever. Oh, and now we have to go through like two years of OT. It's sort of like, put it out there as an experimental thing. Don't take any major risk, but you know, play with it. And I bet, I bet that if you did more, if we did more of that, those folks, those operators, those, you know, young, you know, really smart, uh, you know, folks, folks out there would come up with all sorts of ways of like, what if we did this? What if we did that? I mean, you'd probably have an unending, you know, <laughs> stream of ideas about how different things would be employed and, oh, we could use it for that. If we put this on there, we could do, you know, so yeah, I really would like to see us start doing more of that. Of course, you know, you gotta, it's, recognizable that there's a little bit more of that now like the navy took the fifth fleet right and it's kind of like yeah, yeah. embedding autonomy and, and having them be experimental and integrate battle problem and project convergence and even the air force is is doing some of this stuff so so yeah it, i think it's just like it's been kind of ad hoc and and it kind of required personal leadership just to go get it done as opposed to being part of like the blood and the dna and the day-to-day op tempo I mean, I guess you actually have to take away from op tempo in some respects, right? Because um, there's all these demands. There's always more requirements in the field than you have people and equipment. So, yeah, you almost have to, you know, take take down op tempo or readiness a notch um, in order to be, you know, doing these experiments. But that's a trade off, right? That's part of the modernization readiness op tempo trade off. Yeah, I mean, and let's be honest, most of our operations right now we're not in, we're not in conflict. And so most of it is deterrence ops. And so I think you do have, you have an opportunity there to sort of take advantage of that time and, and do some, do some things. And you're right, Task Force 59 and, and some of those, some of those experiments have been very good. 
um, I think it could still be taken to the next level, but, um, but yeah, no, Navy's, Navy's definitely leading the way, I think, on some of this. I think one of the problems is like when you do a couple of those and you put like kind of blood, sweat and tears, and then you're just like, well, the things that we learned, there was just no path for this to actually affect what was really going on in big A acquisition, right? So then it just kind of, it feels like it will probably be easy to get despondent. And there's like, well, why do all these companies keep c- coming back and showing up anymore when they know there's not light at the end of the tunnel on that one? Yeah, well, that that's where we just have to start fielding a couple of these things. And it is good. The Navy does have real money going towards the, you know, the, the large UUVs and, and USVs. So they're, they're starting to put some real resources. It's, the Air Force has been saying all the right things, right? Kendall's saying we definitely need to get after this to get affordable, um, you know, after unmanned teaming and stuff. And, you know, the Army's, you know, has, has does have robotic programs and, and things like that. And so they are moving in that direction. So I think, I think it's just goes back to sort of like, you know, uh, Bill and Dan's paper, competing in time where it's just like the urgency doesn't yet feel there. And, you know, I think, I wish we could just do these things faster. And I think it comes down to the PVE process, right? I mean, so it's sort of like people, people probably would do things faster if they had gotten in the planning in the right time, but they have to wait for the real money to come two years down the line. So, but yeah. Yeah. I, I guess my articulation would be like, this would all be much faster in some respects if you had integrated decision-making as opposed to like the sequential from office to office, from like requirements to analysis, to budget, to, you know, program acquisition plan, to solicitation, you know, like how do you like kind of collapse all of that and get quicker feedback loops, but like minimize your risk because you're not deciding on a 50 year program all at once. Like that 50 year program evolves through a, competition over time where you know decisions are made at the right time and you can make the front end to back end trade-offs in an integrated manner uh you know and just like but like that all comes back to this pbbe governance structuring and pbbe is the antithesis of what i was kind of outlining there (laughs) right (laughs) yeah no exactly i mean it goes it goes to uh, i I never know if i'm saying his name right but bent fleeshborg Fleischberg. Oh, Fleischberg. Um, yeah. Fly Fleischberg. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I never know, but like, you know, he's the, by the way, for everyone, he's the Oxford mega projects, academic slash book writer, just great stuff on, on mega projects in, in public, uh, in public administration. Yeah. If you read, if you read one book, read mega projects and risk. It's a, uh, that's real. That's a real page turner. Um, yeah, but I mean, he, he's been writing different articles lately, and um, it's just like it's like dead on. Like he's just sort of hitting like dead on what what we need to do. And, and I know you you have it in your acquisition. Next stuff is, you know, just that modular yeah modular approach. Like okay, let's let's get this basic capability, and then and then we can build on it and, and sort of you know you know continue to add on it and make it more capable. But yeah, the fact that we have to plan it out for fifty years and make sure it lasts for 20,000 hours and all that stuff is really, really hinders our ability to, to adapt. And I guess general Milley, of course, chair of the joint chiefs is uh, saying something similar. U S military may need innovation overhaul to fight future wars. Milley says from uh, breaking defense or defense news rather. And so he's kind of pointing to an emerging capabilities policy office, which will help integrate autonomous systems, hypersonic tech, directed energy, and other innovations in the department through their strategy, planning guidance, and budget processes. So I would kind of like to, you know, we have another office that's probably going to advise the uh, vice chair on requirements and try to, you know, actually make sure that that voice, you know, we've heard for a while that like the R&E, and I think the NSCAI commission was looking at this in terms of like ramping up USD RNEs kind of role in the requirements process. But here it seems like we have a, another office that will kind of be the advocate, you know, in the strategy and then getting the, the actual funding involved through the budget. Uh, but what, do you have any information on this? I feel like I've heard about it, but I don't really know what it is or what's going on with it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people interpret it. Uh, and R&E, by the way, already has a seat now in the J-Rock, so they're, they've already sort of been integrated. 
in certain terms of Jason's. But um, but yeah, this this is almost a little bit of a, like joint forces command kind of kind of situation where it's it's basically kind of like pulling together what all the individual services are doing, sort of integrating them into um, uh, you know a joint you know joint being the key one here is integrating them into a joint kind of a function. Uh, but also sort of pushing the boundaries of some of the con ops and operational concepts and things like that. So it's a little bit what Joint Force Command used to do. It's what's now been taken over by J7 and Joint Staff. Uh, under Bob Work, there was an organization called the um, Advanced Capabilities Deterrence Panel, I think it was, ACDP. Um, in our budget paper coming out, we recommend bringing that one back. But but yeah, it's it, it's, you know, I think you do need something like this. I think it does have to be in the right place, has to have the right types of people, and it needs to have access to leadership, right? So, um, so yeah, it's gonna it's gonna have to be something that um, I mean, it should already be doing, right? I mean, these functions do already exist <laughs> in there, but they're just not being not being done. And so, uh, so I think I think something like this is needed. I think uh, the implementation will sort of be where the, the devil in the details will be the the real real indicator if it's going to be successful or not yeah i guess i just have fears like what is this office you know what do they really know about like the state of every single kind of like project under these domains and which one should be pushed forward and accelerated and which one should not and it just seems it always feels weird it's like well let's just layer on more more and more staff planning um when really like the guys executing just needed the flexibility to go after these things anyway. Like, cause they would, they would have the local knowledge required to actually make those decisions. Well, I do think the challenge is though, that the acquisition workforce does not always have that insight. Um, and when they do have that insight, it's usually service specific. There's not too many people that are well-versed across the, the joint force, even, even those folks that, that serve in joint staff. Um, so I'm not sure there's a lot of people who do that. I think this is why I, you know, the, the one, the requirements paper that, 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 that we've talked about, um, I, I keep going back to, you do need a concept shop. You do need a concept development shop that, that understands because they're connected and they don't have any kind of oversight function. They're just connected to be like, you know, what, what, how's that, you know, what do you, uh, what capabilities are you at? Are you working on? When do you think that's going to be there? And they're keeping track of some of those things and engaging with the programs um, and then, but they're more focused on how do we integrate these things into an operational concept so that you can actually go play with it. The, the co-coms will be trained and confident enough that they can go and play it. So I think, I think you do need that shop. I think J7's sort of, there's been papers written about this, but you know, J7's has not had the right people, hasn't really been staffed very well, hasn't been a focused, focused item. I think that does have to change for the China fight. Uh, because there's too many, it's even going to be worse, right? Like now we're talking about AI and some of these more intangible type things that are hard to kind of, you know, graph on a paper, what the impact will be. Um, so as you get more and more into that and software and, you know, disaggregated systems and stuff, it's going to be even more complex. So you do need that shop with the right folks. Um, I think to help pull things together, inform acquisition, uh, push the boundaries on certain things, but, but, you know, I don't think acquisition can do it alone. I don't think the services can do it alone. I think you do need another piece in there to kind of help integrate it. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see what General Miller does here. So let me just say back at you a little bit of what you said. The lower levels don't have the people or the knowledge to kind of execute that. The J7 doesn't either. Uh, but we hope that this new policy office will magically have these these types of people yeah well I mean, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> fair point you're right i think it's going to have to be built right like not there i mean there are people you know but you're going you to have to pull in people like it makes me like think of like of i don't know like office of net assessment you're just going to need a guy that yeah, comes in yeah. or like the a crew that's going to be there for the long term and you know yes, like yeah. i don't i don't see how that's actually going to exist um and i think a lot of what you said was actually like we need this concept shop and blah blah. Well, wasn't didn't that feel a lot like what Army Futures Command did, and then what just got reversed in the Army, where Assault took back not just a lot of those kinds of like acquisition pieces, 
but took back a lot of the science and technology pieces as well. So like, yeah, I, would, no, I would want to understand what happened there. And then what does that imply about what this get, what could work at a OSD level? Yeah, I do think there's some kind of study that's needed to, to really figure out, was this just organizational sort of posturing or was Army Futures really not effectively executing some of those functions? Um, you know, we do have to be aware of, right, in the department, there's organizational preservation sometimes overrides uh, other other things. But but yeah, you're right. The, 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 some of these folks probably will have to be developed. Um, I mean, there are planners. There are a lot, a lot of planners in different pockets. The, you know, uh, Air Army Futures Command, Air Force uh, Warfighting Integration um, Center, and yeah, the Navy probably has, you know, a bunch of different, different pockets of it. So I think really what it is, is about just emphasizing that as important and saying, we're not just using old op- O plans from, you know, back in, from 9-11. Um, and that we've sort of brushed off and we maybe tweak a little bit. We're actually looking at real, real game-changing changes here, like recognizing that carriers and some of these other things that we expected to be front in the force are probably going to be pulled back um, in, in certain scenarios. And so, you know, so, so really kind of like putting brain power on that. I think this is what Space Force is trying to do with the SWAC too. They're, you know, it, it's a tough, it's a tough challenge. I don't say any of this is easy, but is trying to get smart people who do understand a lot of what's out there, who do understand technology and understand the operational piece and bringing those together, you know, teaming with the acquisition community, uh, but, um, but being that forcing function. And I don't think that can happen without really strong leadership support. I think those folks need to recognize their value and they need to, ha- you know, be able to push forward ideas. Maybe they're not always going to be the right ideas, but I think you do need that happening. I don't think joint staff has been doing that. And, and so at, at a minimum, something needs to change there, whether J7 gets beefed up, whether this General Milley shop stands up or something like ACDP stands up. You know, I'm not sure what the what the result will be. And it probably won't happen. That shop probably won't stand up and be, you know, instantaneously, uh, you know, effective. And I'm not sure you need Andrew Marshall to come back. But, you know, you, you do need to start focusing on that. Yeah, so... We'll see. We'll see if we hear much more out of Emerging Capabilities Policy Office here. But uh, Millie was kind of going ham here. He said, we're in the middle of a real unbelievable fundamental change, which is probably <laughs> the biggest fundamental change in the history of warfare. <laughs> I like that line because it seems a little bit over the top. But, you know, I guess he's he's trying to light a fire. I don't know. I think the, I think these I think these generals and, and, and some of the folks on the Hill are finally getting some of the real threat briefs and they're like, you know, this could be bad. Like we could lose, you know? And I think some of them are starting to get that. I think Millie might, might be channeling that energy here. <laughs> well, this is, I mean, the whole idea of this system is like the guy at the top gets to make those calls. So like if Millie and Austin wanted to, supposedly they could like flip this thing on a dime. It's just like, I don't think that's how large complex organizations actually work and then of course you have congress so like setting that aside um i just don't think that's how like large systems work like we have so many of the guys saying the right things heighten vice chair uh just most recently but then like for some reason there's just not the follow-through or i don't know it just doesn't translate no i think we're at the start i mean i think if you view this as a mountain i think we finally are starting to get a sense of urgency in some key pockets. I think there's folks on the Hill, uh, you know, Representative Moulton and, um, and, and, you know, Calvert, Representative Calvert, and some of those folks are starting to, that, you know, get deep into it and go, yeah, this is really bad. We need to make this improve here. And so they're trying to help DOD and there's folks in DOD who realize it. But yeah, absolutely. The system has not energized um, and, and there's still le- lots of lethargy. And so, yeah, I think we're at the bottom of the mountain and until we get to the top, like the system, the full system won't be energized. But at least I think we're starting in some key areas. Yeah. So we, this unbelievable fundamental change. That's a good start. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, what was that? I, I'm not educated enough to know that that fable where the guy's kind of always pushing the rock up the hill. Is it like Sisyphus or something like that? Sisyphus. Yeah, Sisyphus yeah. But yeah. maybe, <laughs> I mean, is, is that the hill you're talking about or is this a hill where yeah. we don't have that rock in front of us? We like, there's actually a mountain to climb that can't be climbed. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I've always hoped that we don't need something 
you know, that's like really war to, yeah. to get it. Done. Yeah. 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 I, I hope, I hope we're, I hope we're starting to see the, the potential of that and, and how we could be in really bad shape and, and that uh, we'll take the right steps. But, you know, sometimes organizations don't shift until something, you know, really ground earth shattering happens. So I hope, hope we're smarter than that. Well, let's, let's move along to the next one, which is the Air Force's secret next-gen fighter has reached development phase uh, from breaking defense. And so I, I guess Air Force Secretary Frank Kendall is kind of announcing that they're starting the engineering manufacturing development program, EMD phase. That's kind of like post-milestone B. They didn't really say it went through a milestone B, but I guess that's what, what essentially happened. They had the prototype demonstrator... They didn't really call it, it wasn't clear whether the initial thing, they said it was like a demonstrator flight. Um, it wasn't really clear. And these definitions are kind of fuzzy too, between demonstrator prototype and full scale development. But it looks like, you know, they're kind of moving into that single, you know, full scale development uh, program of record-y type thing. And the, the line here is that moving into the EMD stage more than likely means that the Air Force has coalesced around a single fighter design made by a single prime contractor and the speculation <laughs> was essentially like eh, it's probably lockheed you know boeing <laughs> might be the dark horse northrop is probably overloaded with b21 so it's probably lockheed but maybe maybe boeing's pulling something out yeah it's it's probably lockheed I, I, although so there's there's some speculation about about you know about NGAD. um actually there's some interesting uh area 51 uh, photos that were taken by um, uh, by some civilian commercial satellite companies that that sort of looks like it could be an NGAD type plane, um, but yeah, Kendall and some other some other interviews he gave, he kind of said like uh, he was poked a little bit and said like, well, NGAD, you you're saying that the you know time to get to a capability is seven years, um, and you're saying NGAD won't be in production until 2030s. Um, but you started NGAD years ago. He's like, no, 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 the, the clock starts now. So I guess he's kind of starting the clock now. And he sort of said he thinks it's mature enough that they don't need to do TMRR. Um, so whether you consider that there was a prototyping or demonstration done, maybe it was digital engineering, or maybe it was out of Area 51 flying around, I don't know. But, um, but yeah, he's starting the clock now. And so EMD, that would make sense for it to kind of start the clock because that's when the program record is officially started so if, if, if he's thinking that way that's probably true and then i think the schedule is uh early 2030s will at least be kind of an albert phase so um so yeah i guess that's where we're at so we'll know probably for a while so if we compare this to an f-35 we're at like 2002 or 2001 time frame and then they yeah they basically yeah. got into first flight 2007 ish something like yeah. that yeah um, and, and we got in production and, uh, what was our first production? It's probably 2010. I think 2010 was our first hour. So. Yeah. So, so yeah. that's probably, that sounds about reasonable for this one too, right? Like probably 2027 ish will be kind of like when you're, you're flying this thing at around and then 2030 ish is when you're kind of moving into production. Yeah. Yeah. And there's real money going to this one. So so some people have speculated that this will either be a bomber type thing, a small bomber. Um, so it won't be quite like the B-21, but it will have bomber-like characteristics. And so less of a, you know, less of the traditional fighter, fighter look, um, a little bit more elongated, maybe almost like the J-20. Um, or it will, there'll be a mix and maybe you'll have two different uh, versions. And that's sort of a, you know, real fighter thing. So you still have that capability. And then maybe one that's just a longer range kind of fighter. So you can get a lot closer because that's a challenge with the F-35 right now. 900 mile, you know, 900 mile legs and ability to get tankers, you know, in the first island chain, it's sort of hard to be, it's going to be kind of hard for the F-35 to operate really well. So maybe expand that so you can get more of a B-1 type range. Uh, so yeah, I guess we'll, we'll see, but uh, that's some of the thinking. Well, a lot more to see on this and then what the Navy's doing and then what are all the other pieces of the NGAD kind of experience, right, and family of systems. Um, I wonder if they're going to mint a, a selected acquisition report. Well, I guess that's been extended for another year, so I guess we'll see. Uh, but I wonder if they're going to keep all of that kind of, you know, unit cost data and schedule and IOC stuff, you know, secret. 
Oh yeah, this will be like the V twenty one. You won't get it. You won't get any cost details. Well, guarantee. Why was the F thirty five so kind of like open? Because of the allies. Yeah, I, I think it, I think if um, if we hadn't if it hadn't been an allied program, we probably would have kept more of that more of it classified. But um, yeah, got it. Well, Raytheon's Collins Aerospace is selected by NASA for the spacesuit contract, and that could be valued at a total of $3.5 billion uh, for missions over the next dozen uh, years or so. So they chose Axiom Space as well, a company, um, so they could have two companies essentially call on for suits, and they're kind of like the backup option and help drive down costs, two teams for competing. I was pretty sure I was remember Nat or SpaceX showing some interest. I don't know if they actually bid or not on this one. It, they weren't mentioned, but I remember there was a, an article a while ago where, and there was actually like a, G, a GAO audit of this program from NASA where NASA was actually like managing the program itself as an integrator. And they had like 30 or 40 different contracts out for different, you know, subsystems of this thing. And the thing was just like, a mess that took forever and wasn't actually delivering anything. And <laughs> Elon Musk comes out and is just like, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> well, they, they don't, don't they? Uh, the, uh, um, the dragon capsule uh, folks that have gone up, they, they have like, yeah, but that's not, exos- that's not exospheric. I think these, oh, okay. I think these are exospheric. Like you're going for a spacewalk kind of thing. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, but I'm sure SpaceX is just going to be developing him anyway. I feel like there's some kind of like government. I don't know if this is conscious, but like government sometimes is just like, well, what company's just going to do it anyway? And so I don't have to fund them and I can maximize the use of my dollars by funding this other guy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's, I just get that feeling a lot with SpaceX and what they do. It's like, why are they, I just be like sending everything up with them. And I I know. Much cheaper. I feel like there's still a resistance to kind of giving them like too much business because they're like afraid of Elon taking everything over or something. But I know in some cases you're just like, yeah, just give it to him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, how the DOD tells industry how to handle costs of inflation. So this was actually an interesting one. Uh, John Teneglia over at uh, Defense Pricing and Contracting um, had guidance that came out on handling the difference of uh, contract arrangements. So essentially, you know, contractors were... <laughs> and others were pushing for a lot of more firm fixed price contracts, right? And now that we have like this bout of inflation, those contracts no longer look so good. And they're like, oh man, like we need um, equitable adjustments or we need to move to fixed price uh, economic price adjustment. So like the underlying labor materials kind of tied to an index. Um, so whatever happens in the economy, they'll get kind of paid based on that escalation. And so the... The memo here, the interesting part of it is that, uh, I'll just quote it, since cost impacts due to unanticipated inflation are not the result of a contracting officer-directed change, DOD should not agree to contractor requests for equitable adjustments on firm fixed-price contracts um, submitted in response to changed economic conditions. So that was, that's pretty it clear. Make sense, does it? it doesn't make sense. I mean, it doesn't make sense, like, saying that just because it wasn't a contracting officer-directed change, <laughs> that you can't do it. I mean, REAs are never contracting officer-directed, or very rarely. <laughs> They're usually <laughs> contracting, contractor-directed. Yeah, or contractor well, I mean, that's certainly, um, you know, on the, on the COVID front, remember, like, well, that wasn't contractor-directed that there was a pandemic. But um, or the contracting officer didn't direct the pandemic, obviously, yeah. <laughs> um, but they still submitted a bunch of REAs to that degree. I don't know if they ever had a global settlement or what actually hap- happened with all those REAs from the COVID times. But the government did tell them you still had to keep working through the pandemic where other firms were shut down. So maybe that was contracting officer directed. I don't know. But in this case, I mean, mm-hmm. when you think about it, like firm fixed price, right? Oh, what happens if we get in a deflationary spiral and the government says, oh, well, we now need to renegotiate your c- contracts uh, because of this windfall in profits that you guys got uh, be- because there just happened to be an economic change. I'm sure contractors would be like, hell no. Yeah, it is. You're right. I mean, at the same time, though, if there was like a um, an FPIF contract too, like 
you know, you could, you could have some of this on there too, where like wasn't built into the, the target cost. And so, yeah, maybe in deflationary, they would save more money and they would get a higher cost share, you know? So I, I feel like there are different scenarios you could play this out, but, um, or, you know, for even for, even for cost ones like that, like, you know, you sort of like, you know, you expected to, you expected to pay, pay a certain amount, but then certain, you know, certain, uh, you know, labor rates go up and stuff like that. And you just can't, you can't predict everything. So I do think there should be some flexibility for firm fixed price. Like if it's clear that you're buying titanium or some kind of, you know, uh, material that has just like skyrocketed either due to shipping or other stuff, I think they should have some wiggle room there. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I always view this as a partnership. If you make your contractor miserable, you will probably be miserable. Uh, so I wish they would have been a little bit more sort of like, you know, look at it, make, make, a, make judgment calls. Uh, but, you know, our preference is not to adjust for a fixed price. Um, and so only do it if there's like compelling reason to do so or something like that. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it on the other side, right? Like um, you could get like a defective price. If, if this is a sole source, you could get a defective pricing if like the material came in super low, right? And so you would actually be forced to kind of pay back some of that to the government so you don't get inordinate profits. But then on the flip side, if the price goes super high, then the contractor doesn't have any cause for recourse, like reverse defective pricing, right? <laughs> or defective pricing that, that like actually increases. I think, you know, yeah. if you have a defective pricing, you can actually show some things that went higher as well and have some offsets, but I don't think you can go higher than that price. But yeah, it's almost like an asymmetric thing for the contractors where like if they, if costs are much lower and they might realize a bunch of profits, then some of that gets clawed back in many cases. But if costs go too high, then there's not like a commensurate kind of other process unless, you know, DOD comes back and says, yes, we will, you know, amend these contracts, modify them or give you REAs or otherwise. Yeah. But that would be a lot of effort too. If like they're going to submit all these REAs, um, they're going to have to show like, you know, titanium went like this and that's the impact. And then they're going to have to find a reasonable, is it yes or no? And then I'm sure it would be like very hard to adjudicate that. And then that's all that money that Congress ain't appropriate in my, like, there's not going to be a supplemental for that. Right. So that's just going to come out of capability. No, you're absolutely right about that. And that's why there's, this should be done judiciously. Um, I mean, you're absolutely right about the workload though, man. They almost need to contract this out to like some, some audit firm or some, you know, some special, special legal firm that deals with this kind of stuff, because that's going to be, it's going to be a bear to, to work through is having to you know look at the justification and you know the government's going to be challenged to try to confirm some of that stuff and yeah it's, that'll be that'll be that'll be a lot of work if you have to do that all over the across the DOD. yeah i'm sure well we'll see if uh inflation is bucking the trend right there some people are speculating you know like it might have peaked and are things coming down um i think yeah. it's one of those things it's just very hard to know like how much of it is kind of supply driven, you know, demand. And then government is obviously pumping out money. So there's a lot of demand driven stuff. And then there's also this quantity of money theory aspect and all that. So, and then interest rates, I, uh, there's a lot going on, right? So uh, I guess we'll, we'll see what happens on the inflation front. In a weird way, the whole Ukraine conflict could almost maybe potentially stabilize inflation. <laughs> In what way? Sort of like tamping down demand. Like it seems as though, the, some of the economists I saw some article the other day said it's uh, it's slowing it's slowing global economic growth. So I don't because know. Of, I don't know if it would. But why would demand? Why Ukraine would work? demand in the U.S. decline because of Ukraine? I mean, there's a supply shock. I see that side of it. But why the demand shock? I don't know. Maybe just like in general, like slower economic growth kind of makes people reevaluate you know, spending, you know, buying a new car or just some of those typical spending purchases, like maybe it's sort of an ancillary, has an ancillary impact on, on just, uh, you know, what purchases you buy. It's not maybe direct, but, um, I don't know, you know, supply chain shortages do, do impact too. So maybe that's part of it is some of the things that you want to buy 
are a little bit more costly. So maybe you don't spend quite as much. And so I don't know. It's like, would that all, wouldn't that help balance it? If uh, some of these shopping sprees started to kind of subside a little bit, people had all this money they hadn't spent and now they're running out to, uh, to spend it all at once. And if some of that got pulled back a little bit, it might, it might help. Yeah. My, my guesstimation that is not really founded in too much is that, you know, I was pretty wrong after the 2008 thing. I thought there would be um, a lot more inflation with the way that the Fed expended, expanded their balance sheet so much and then TARP and all that kind of stuff. So um, none of that actually materialized. There was just low ass interest rates, low inflation for a long time and like high asset prices. And then, and now we're actually getting to like the first time in like a generation where interest rates are kind of actually going up and that seems to have had a much bigger impact across a lot of sectors um, than I was kind of expecting. I guess I was expecting it. You know, I was expecting that and like that rush to buy houses, you know, right before then. But, you know, this is actually going to have a big downstream impact on a lot of these firms, right? Because, you know, right as we're talking about, there's a lot of these cyber companies or whatever, and they are trying to cross this value of death and like DOD programs aren't there to catch them yet. Like where, where are we going to find, you know, this cushion or this bridge? Um, now we get higher interest rates, which means a lot of money is going to be pulled out of speculative assets, right? And these types of firms are going to have a much harder time getting the next funding round, especially if they can't demonstrate a produ- like a pretty big production contract. So I kind of yeah. wonder about like, what's that effect going to be on, on the, the new entrants? Well, particularly too, I, there was another uh, write-up about VC firms looking at the uh, uh, the interest rate increases and, and reevaluating, you know, just how much they kind of put out there. Because you know, when money was practically free, it was sort of VCs were willing to make you know much riskier decisions. But um, you know, now it seems like it maybe is sort of tamping that enthusiasm down a little bit. So. Yeah, maybe some of these small firms too also won't be getting the commercial off ramps that, you know, maybe in, in more, uh, you know, more open times that they, they would have. And so you're right, it could even be more reliance on uh, on the Pentagon to uh, to come through and could be, yeah, could be rough, could be rough times ahead for, uh, for some of these smalls. So let's just do uh, one more on the list. Congress is right, accelerate the E7 wedge tail buy. And of course, the... Uh... The E7 is the, the AWACS replacement, right? No, it's the JSTARS replacement. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that does the uh, this synthetic aperture radar and a bunch of other kinds of like battle management with uh, ground to air, right? Um, information and and providing that to the rest of the force. Uh, but I guess the, the point here is like, okay, so we, we offer ramp to JSTARS. We're not going to get, um, you know, like the space solution just yet. Uh, so we need kind of a gap filler. And then the, the Air Force came in and said, we're going to do a rapid prototyping. And in five years, we'll have that, you know, development done and we can move into production. It's like, this thing's already flying, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. I think with Australia and, or is it the UK? Um, someone's already flying it. And so- Australia, yeah. Yeah, it's Australia. Yeah, so why don't we just have this available? <laughs> and so this, one of the things that he says here, which was interesting- Options include the Air Force requesting reprogramming of FY22 money to new start authority so that they can get an E7 on contract much months earlier than planned. I mean, yeah, so that's one way to kind of get it started earlier. But how do you actually just get it fielded earlier, too? Yeah, I mean, no doubt there will be, you know, some sustainment tales and different things to work out that, you know, takes a little bit of time. But it does seem it does seem like it should be a lot faster, and it just might be one of those things where we just can't help ourselves with regards to like we buy a new platform, we sort of have to Cadillac it, you know, to use an old 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 term there. But it's like, well, you know, instead of just taking maybe the eighty percent solution, I wonder if they are trying to cram a million things in there. And this is sort of what happened when before ABMS was started, there was a there was another program to replace AWACS. And, uh, and it was, um, it, it had, it had the same thing. It was like, they were trying to do a million things with it and they were, they were having sort of, sort of challenges and, you know, trying to make it, these things really small form factor and all this stuff. So I hope that's not the case here. Um, it's hard to tell. I think we'll probably need to get some more details on it, but 
but yeah, the AWACs are, <clears throat> it is, this is for the AWAC. Um, the AWACs are getting out of, yeah, going out of business. Uh, they're, they're just can't be sustained. And so they need to, uh, need to get these in there. I really don't understand why they can't do it faster. It's, that is, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure they're going to get more questions on this now that as, as it's going to the hill. So I guess we'll see what they, see what they say. Yeah, it is the it is the AWACS, so it's kind of like the the air to air version of the J Stars, more gr- air to ground, right? Of the of the air battle managers. Yep. Uh, so so it looks like they are like so J Stars was kind of had J Stars recap. J Stars recap was kind of turned into ABMS. ABMS turned out that they weren't going to actually fulfill that mission. Uh, so then the Space Force now has it, and that's still running. Right, like the space force is gonna fill that gap <laughs> at some point. Yeah, GMTI, that's the little GMTI thing. Yeah, yeah, ground mo- ground moving about. target indicator. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So okay, well, you know, we'll see if this happens. You know, I'm sure people would be cheering if they can get an E7. Like, in, in my view, is just like get the what's where are they fielding to Australia? I know the U.S. is gonna want additional capabilities. What can you do fast? And then just like mod those over time or like introduce them um, with growing capabilities over time. But don't wait seven years or five years to get like the perfect thing before we can start fielding these at scale. Because it's just it's a gap filler, right? Yeah, it's a gap filler. I mean, I will say it does. It shows lack of confidence in ABMS. Um, you know, I won't say that if that's founded or not, but um it does make it sort of seem like if this is a seven year thing and they're buying these aircraft that they're planning to keep them around for a long time. And so will that sort of take some of the energy out of uh, some of the ABMS or yeah, ABMS investments or, or, you know, how will that play? Cause you could see some saying, well, if this is working really well, maybe we don't need some of this ABMS stuff. And that's probably not the right answer, but you could see that happening, especially tight budgets. Yeah, one of the interesting parts of this article was I'm just going to quote it here because he's talking about like, hey, you know, having good command and control and situational awareness is super important to making the most effective use of of the forces you have. And so he kind of goes back to World War Two and he's like, you know, the Royal Air Force had only 446 fighters to ward off 3,500 operational German combat aircraft in the summer of 1940. And they were effective essentially because they had the radar to make the best use of what they had so they could vector, you know, their, um, their forces only when needed. And that kind of like helped them optimize. And I guess that's true. And then he kind of mentions that, you know, the air force today in the U S only has 160 operational F 35s and hundred operational F 22s. So you need to make the most of this small force, but, you know, I guess where this kind of breaks down for me is just like, well, there's nothing really feasible about the Germans like bombing all the the radar sites so that they wouldn't have been able to use radar. There's nothing feasible about the Germans having stealth, but there is something feasible about shooting down, you know, it, an E7, right? <laughs> like this big flying object in the middle of the sky is not the most survivable thing. No, in China, China has a wax too. I, I forget what they're, I forget what they're called, but yeah, it, these are critical assets because it, it really does provide that quarterbacking sort of thing to, uh, you know, deconflict and to, you know, as new targets are identified, is, is make sure like the higher priority missions are getting accomplished and, and, and whatnot and, and sort of be that integrating function. F-35 can do some of this. So I think I think that will be interesting is how much of this can be decentralized. Well, I'm just saying um, that the the British radar in World War II was survivable. Whereas yeah, like an no, E7 is not as, or like an AWACS is, might not be as survivable in a high-end conflict. Yeah, yeah. No, sorry. That's that's what I was getting at was the, the Chinese have these and they're probably going to be one of the first targets for us to take down because it's, you know, it really can, it really will impact the air, air mission. Um, and it's probably going to be one of the things that they will want to take down. So I think in both these cases, these assets will probably have to be, you know, as far as back as practicable. And they probably will have some major fighter escort and protective assets around them. So, yeah, you will have you'll have to protect these things because you're right; they're they're going to be targets. Yeah, yeah. It's always kind of scary to think about like how much of the force structure is just protecting 
another party, right? Like how many destroyers and other parts are in the carrier battle group? You know, how much do I have to like on any kind of sortie, how many of those aircraft have to like, you know, protect your AWACS and your J stars and any of your other kinds of like assets out there um, or suppressing certain types of things and not really getting to get to the mission. I mean, David Deptool makes this point on cost per effectiveness, right? All the time. But yeah, I mean, I think that's the whole point with what we've talked about with some of the sort of high end assets is if they really, if, if we, in a, in a conflict, we are afraid of losing them and we pull those back out of, you know, risk aversion, uh, then they're, they're out of the fight, right? I mean, that you do need, you need the things that can be in the fight. So, so I think you're right. I mean, I think ultimately we need, we need ABMS, which is distributed and you can take out a few nodes, um, just like NC3, the way the NC3 communications are set up, you know, you can lose nodes and you still maintain the, the, the configuration. Um, this nuclear so command control and communications. We need to, we, I, I actually had that yeah, uh, you're right. discussion. Yeah, you're right. Like I remember when you were talking about SWAC, I was like, wait, what? Oh yeah. The space war fighting. Sorry. I, am, I do. I, am, I do it too. But we, <laughs> I am, yeah, you're right. You're right. Thank you. You're right. You called it out. So, so yeah, that's uh yeah. Well, we'll eventually have to move to ABMS or battle management, advanced battle management system. And, and that will, you know, that will have to be the future of C2. So hopefully these E7s don't steal some of the uh, resources away from that. Well, that's all we got time for today. Thanks, Matt. And we'll talk to you next week. All right. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again. And until next time. <laughs>